0: Welcome to Brain In A Vet. We're going to be talking about the philosophy of action. Elena, would you like to start with a thought experiment?
1: The thought experiment, or rather the story that I would like to start us off with, is from Rousseau's Confessions. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a French philosopher in the 18th century. You're probably all familiar with him. Towards the end of his life, he writes this work called Confessions. And he tells us that in this work, he's going to tell us the whole truth about himself, about who he is, what he's thought, what he's desired and what he's done in his life. And one of the episodes that he recounts is from his youth when he worked as a servant for a while in a rich household. And what happened was that he stole a ribbon. He says he stole a ribbon in order to give it to one of the maids who also worked in the household, Marion, who he kind of fancied, I suppose. Then the ribbon is discovered in Rousseau's possession, and there's a big scandal. And Rousseau says he was very scared, very confused. He worried about his reputation, he worried he didn't want to lose the job. And so, because of that, he reached for a line. And he said that it was Marion who gave the ribbon to him. the reason he reached for this lie was because he wanted to give the ribbon to Marion, so he just said that Marion actually gave it to him. And as a result, both fired from the household and Rousseau says he's terribly sorry, he's carried this deep, terrible secret with him his whole life. He's never told anyone, but he's been very concerned about Marion. He thinks maybe she never managed to find another good position after such a hit to her reputation. He thinks maybe even she killed herself because well, it must have, her life could have been ruined by what he's done, so he's, he's very remorseful, but there he's, he's told us the truth, he's confessed. And the question I think is, well, how do we evaluate Rousseau's confession? If confession, telling the truth about yourself, about what you've done is a necessary step in the cycle that begins with a wrongdoing and ends, hopefully with forgiveness and rehabilitation, what do we think? Has Rousseau confessed successfully or not? And I think there are a few reasons that we might have to suspect someone's confession. Uh, the first, maybe very obvious is, well, maybe they're lying, but they're not being sincere, that's a possibility. The second possibility is, well, maybe he's not deliberately lying, but he is recounting an episode that has happened very long ago. So maybe his memory is misleading him. And I think there's also a third possibility, the third possibility being, well, maybe he is being sincere and he's remembering his state of mind perfectly, but maybe he doesn't quite understand what like he doesn't quite understand the nature of what he's done he did something of which he wasn't conscious of, of which he wasn't aware and that's how his confession goes wrong
2: so as i understand it the problem is that when someone apologizes or confesses to wrongdoing we can't know for sure that their confession is good enough for us to forgive them and the good enoughness can fall apart, maybe not just because they're being insincere, but because they're being sincere, but they don't really understand what they've done wrong. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: Yes, yeah, that's correct.
2: So what do we do then? How do we ever make progress when someone apologizes?
1: Well, what we what we should do is a complicated question. I mean, the goal is to figure out what actually happened, what did the person actually do and for them to acknowledge what they've really done. But for starters, I think we need to acknowledge that all of the ways um, that I've listed in which confessions can go wrong, possible ways in which it can go wrong. And my gripe with contemporary action theory is that it doesn't really acknowledge the, the third possibility, or it doesn't give us good tools to think about this third possibility but the agent is being sincere and they're remembering everything very well but they did something of which they were not conscious
0: so on this front it seems like there's an ambiguity the idea that you could act without knowing is interesting that you are doing something subconscious and to try and if we can unearth what that means and the other one is that There's a sense in which we interpret someone's actions. We can sort of read it like a text. And there's a a way that a reasonable person understands what someone has done, or a reasonable reader engages with what something means. And that can be quite different from what someone intends, that their private mental states might very well be different from how they are read by others. And I think what you're trying to get at is that as much as outsiders could misinterpret what we're doing, we could be misinterpreting ourselves.
1: You could look at this problem from a third-person point of view. So someone confesses or someone apologizes. And then the question is, how do you evaluate the quality uh, the success of their confession or apology? But there's, you can also look at it from the first person point of view. So how do you yourself confess successfully? And, you know, I think you can be pretty certain about when you're being sincere and maybe you're confessing something that hasn't happened 20 years ago. You're confessing something that has happened this morning. And I think in order to do it successfully, you can't just report What was on your mind as you were doing it? You need to be aware of the possibility that you might have done something of which you were not conscious, not aware.
2: So, you think that a big part of apologizing successfully or confessing successfully is to be humble about the facts. So, you can say, Well, I did this as far as I know. Uh, As far as I know, this is what was going on in my mind and this is what I did. But it's possible that I misremember, it's possible that I don't fully understand the situation. And the person I'm apologizing to might have a different take on it that's correct.
1: You could say that you need to be humble. Um, I think one could be too humble. What you need to be is truthful. And in order to be truthful, you need to be aware of how human action works. And yes, a a big topic for me or a topic that I'm working on is, I think, Rousseau himself, he says something to convince the readers that this third possibility is not really an option. It's not possible that he's getting himself wrong, unless it's maybe by misremembering, because there's something special about an agent's relationship to their own mental states and to their own actions. So Rousseau says, look, this is how you know that what I'm telling is true. It's because I have a special relationship to my own mind. I know what has gone on inside of me. I may misremember dates or I might get some external facts wrong, but I cannot get myself wrong. I only need to enter back into my inner self and then I'll know exactly what was going on. And I think that's partially, well, partially because it is uh, common sense and partially we are the inheritors of uh, thinkers like Freud and Nietzsche and Marx and a lot of the developments in social science and cognitive science and neuroscience. On the other hand, I think we are also, most of us from time to time in the grips of this idea that Rousseau is expressing. I know I have been in the grips of that idea and I still am from time to time. You know, when somebody questions my account of myself, I can say, or I've been known to say things like, "No, I know my own mind. Like, are you really going to tell me what I'm thinking though? I know what I'm thinking and what I'm intending and what I'm doing. So I think that idea also has quite a strong hold on us. And that idea is steeped in a lot of um, philosophical history, starting with Descartes. And I think it is not that easy to get rid of it. I think it persists in contemporary action theory, even though it gets progressively more refined as action philosophers are more open to considering different kinds of examples of actions, a story like Rousseau's, for example, where people have given undermining interpretations uh, that differ from Rousseau's own interpretation. So there has been some progress, but it, it I do find it fascinating how difficult it is to fully get rid of that very attractive idea at the theoretical level, especially.
0: So I, I like that you've teased out this tension between the view that we know ourselves and this idea that we could be mysterious to ourselves and that it requires some external party to do the unearthing. I sort of worry about who would actually have that privileged status to do the unearthing. So we think about these Freudian accounts, the idea that you have this deep unconscious that's playing a role in motivating you to perform certain actions. You can imagine that someone goes to a psychologist and says, I've done a lot of thinking and I've decided that I wanna work in a coal mine. And the reason why I wanna work in a coal mine is I feel like I could do some adventure in my life and I'd be meeting people from a different class and I could uh, travel, I could go to different coal mines around the world and this is why I want to do it. And the Freudian psychologist says, that's not why you want to do it. The reason why you want to do it is because you have a deep edible complex and actually you want to murder your father and you want to fuck your mother. And the idea of going to the coal mine is this way for you to bring your body through a deep cavern and that's the, the symbolism of, of fucking your mother and carrying the pickaxe is the weapon that you would use to kill your father. And you say to him, this is completely and utterly detached from reality. I don't know how you can come up with an interpretation like that. It doesn't match at all what I'm telling you my motivations are. So now we have this, these contrary accounts of what's going on and which is the one that we are ought to pick. Is there a sense we just go we're agnostic, we don't know, or is there some basis we could use to determine what's actually going on?
1: Well, I would say that, yeah, there is a basis and what we need to try to figure out what that space is because you're right I've said that on the one hand we're beholden or we're sometimes in the grips of this idea that only we know our own minds or that we know them somehow incorrigibly on the other hand we are comfortable especially maybe when it comes to other people to provide undermining interpretations of their actions the problem is that we often do it indiscriminately and maybe sometimes uh, these undermining interpretations are themselves self-serving and not really thought through i, I have some gripes both with the, the kind of uh, freudian example that, that you have introduced but also with people saying for example that the, the patriarchy does this because i think the patriarchy is not an agent so it's kind of a slippery use of, of language so th- that's why we do need the help of philosophers to Think through an action theoretic account that's going to help us find our way in these complicated interpretations. One thing that's very nice about the Cartesian kind of action is that it, it gives you a very clear answer or a very clear way uh, actually of figuring out what actually happened. You just ask the agent, or you just, if you are the agent, you just report sincerely to say, well, what do you think you were doing? And that, and that's it. It gets much messier and more complicated when you say, no, the agent is not privileged. We all can try and provide the best interpretation of what they did. And we need some theoretic tools to help us not go astray. And I think that those tools have not been developed yet. We've had nearly one century of philosophy of action, and they have not, done that uh, for us. They haven't really helped us think about these kinds of messy, complicated interpretive questions. I haven't uh, told you about the really difficult cases. Give me
0: your really difficult (laughs) case.
1: Okay. I mean, there are many, many very difficult cases, but let, let me give you one. I call this category the teleologically paradoxical actions. And there are some actions that we can only do if we are not aware of the goal that we're pursuing. Uh, we can only do them successfully if we're not aware of the goal and one classical example that for example mill discusses is happiness so if you want to be happy you the advice is you shouldn't try to be happy you shouldn't be conscious of like oh this is what i'm doing i'm trying to be happy for whatever reason it's a curious question why why we are like that but i think the observation that we are like that is quite apt maybe it's because if The goal of being happy is on your mind, you'll constantly try to measure how you're doing and compare yourself and something about that process is counterproductive to happiness. Another example of the teleological paradox uh, is that I think is very interesting is the pursuit of esteem. And one of my advisors who wrote The Economy of Esteem, he notes that it is in part due to this teleological paradox. Doxical structure to the pursuit of the steam, that it has been kind of under the radar uh, of a lot of philosophers and social science. We've talked in much more explicit terms about the pursuit of power, the pursuit of wealth and economics, but not so much about the pursuit of esteem. And part of the reason for that is that we do esteem best if we're not too focused or too aware of the fact that this is what we're doing. For two reasons. One is that people find the overt pursuit of steam and others disesteemable. We want to esteem someone for uh, their virtues, rather than for trying to show us what virtues they are. Because if they're just trying to show us how virtues they are, that's a reason to suspect that maybe they're not really virtuous. They're just trying to put on a performance. And the, the second reason is that we ourselves might find it a bit disesteemable to, to be aware that, oh, I'm just doing it in order to get this team. We might disesteem ourselves for that. There's something uh, a little bit gross uh, about that. So that's not to say that there couldn't be creatures that Pursue esteem and happiness in an open eyed way, but we are not such creatures. Interesting case that I'll just throw out there is forgetting. I I like that one because I'm a fan of Nietzsche, and Nietzsche said that we underestimate the forgetting as an active power. We think of it as this kind of deficiency, as something that happens to us, but actually it can be a powerful capacity. And forgetting is something that you definitely can't do with full access because you're forgetting, you're trying to forget something, right? So you can't be aware of trying to forget that thing because it will be on your mind. You can only accomplish it by locking access to the fact that you're trying to forget something and that has relevance for thinking about cases of self-deception because in cases of self-deception, you're trying to suppress a fact that you know. So there's a kind of forgetting that is involved in that. I think it's relevant for understanding things like play or acting, again, this might not be the case for all actors, but for a lot of actors, I think one of the things that they need to do is forget that there's an audience there in order to act naturally. And I think it's also important for thinking about how we operate with certain idealized concepts. So this is my other inspiration, this book by Quam Anthony Appiah, As If, in which he talks about how we make use of idealizations in our theoretical and practical thinking. And by idealizations, he means notions that are either at odds with the phenomena or notions that are self-contradictory. So for example, the notion of a square root of a negative number is a contradic- self-contradictory notion. And I know that some people might disagree with that, because, and a lot of work has been done in mathematics to explain why it's not a self-contradictory notion, but th- that's so, so that's all fine. But, at this point is that mathematicians before all that progress has been done have been using the notion of a square root of a negative number to make calculations and they thought of it as a contradictory notion so when you're using a contradictory notion there needs to be some kind of suppression that's going on so that you can operate in the continuity and yes in that uh, context i think forgetting also has some relevance
0: well what i like about all these examples is that you point out there are so many puzzles and paradoxes that have to be worked through if we want to find out what's really going on in our minds and through our actions. And I think you've done an excellent job of piquing our imaginations to try and think about how do we solve this problem.
1: And I hope more people think about it in theoretical terms, because as I've said, I think uh, the idea that we do things without realizing that we're doing them is not Uh, extremely surprising. Mostly at dinner parties, when I tell people what my thesis is about, they're surprised that the philosophers uh, haven't caught uh, up with that. And I do think that's uh, a very fascinating history of philosophy question to to ask why the tradition has gone a certain way. And I think there are some um, reasons that we can give that are quite flattering for why the tradition has proceeded as it has, and some that are maybe a bit less flattering. Um, I mean, I think one reason that it has proceeded in this way is that, There's been so many things that we had to uh, rethink to free ourselves from this Cartesian dogma. I mean, I've only talked about the excess uh, uh, of the Cartesian inheritance, but uh, one important thing that we've inherited from Descartes was the dualism, and that had to be overcome uh, in philosophy of action to uh, reconcile our thinking about action with a naturalistic view of the universe. So I think people have been doing very, important work to take us further and taking some time so you know that they didn't manage to do everything that that they had to do and i think you know that maybe the less flattering explanation is uh, that philosophers are uh, by the nature of their profession uh, philosophy is about calm deliberation it's a very s-axis type of thing so i think that that explains in part why the examples that philosophers reach for first when they think about action are these very deliberate uh, actions and I mean, th- that's what, and that was what <laughs> bothered me and uh, inspired me to try to bring more examples into the literature. Was that m- most of the examples are things like raising your arm and writing a word on the blackboard, very simple, very deliberate um, examples. On the one hand, it is a very unsurprising idea to people that we do a lot of things without realizing them. But we haven't made very much progress in terms of uh, actually theorizing about it. So creating a common theory. Um, which will help us understand both these strange uh, kinds of actions that cannot be uh, explained derivatively from the former paradigm.
2: So it seems like there's certain things about our minds that we do know for sure. So let's say I stick my hand on a hot stove. I know for sure that I'm in pain. That that seems right to me. And I guess this Cartesian idea that I know my mind. I mean, he didn't discuss those kind of states, as far as I understand. But it's It stems from this idea that there are certain states that I know for sure, and then I start to build upon those, right? So I have this fundamentalist account that there's certain things I know for sure and I build. And I I know that when I put my hand on that stove, that there is pain. And then you ask me, so what happened when you stole the ribbon, Rousseau? And Rousseau says, "Uh, well, I felt this and I thought that. And that seems not that dissimilar from I put my hand on the stove and I felt pain. It seems like I'm reporting something that you can't really argue with.
1: Right, Yes, Descartes' uh, famous example was uh, Cogito Ergo sum. right? He, he thought we can't have certain knowledge of the world. There's a kind of radical skepticism about knowledge of the external world because it could be an evil demon just creating illusions, and tricking us. But I cannot be mistaken about the fact that I'm thinking uh, a thought, or I can't be mistaken about the fact that it seems to me uh, that I'm seeing uh, a cup on the table. And in, in fact, one could say that it, it was a necessary feature uh, of Descartes' account that there are some things that we must know f- for sure because he introduced the notion of representation to, uh, he really developed the notion of representation to account for how we know the external world. And if you know most things representationally, there must be some things that you know non-representationally immediately otherwise you would have this infinite regress of representations. So yeah, you're you're right. He thought that so there must be some things that we know for sure. And non-representationally, so there's no way for us to go wrong because we're not representing anything. So we're not doing anything. So there's no possibility of error. We just know these things, namely our own minds, for sure. And yeah, this is the foundation of our knowledge.
0: Can you give us an idea of where contemporary action theory is at the moment? What is it trying to explain uh, and what are the dominant accounts?
1: Sure. Yeah. I think it's still trying to explain how agents have immediate and to a certain extent incorrigible access to their actions. And I think philosophy of action in the 20th century starts with a picture that is quite a lot like Descartes. So this is the the background picture. What is an action? Well, an action is when you deliberate about what to do and you come to a certain decision, and then that decision makes you act, makes your body act. This is quite uh, a Cartesian picture also because of this. You know, the, the intention is, or the decision is something mental, and then the action is something physical that is caused by this mental representation. And one way in which I think philosophers of action like Sellers or Davidson, uh, late Davidson, have improved on Descartes' account is they've explained what, what justifies you in this self-knowledge of your intention that doesn't come from observing, well, it doesn't come from drawing an inference because this notion of non-representational knowledge in Descartes was quite mysterious because he's only really given us uh, a model of how you know something representationally. And then there are these things that, you know, non-representationally, it, it remains a kind of mysterious notion or maybe even a contradictory notion, because on the one hand, when he says like, you know, that for, well, I know for sure that I'm thinking, I'm supposed to know a fact about the world. But all the other facts about the world, I know representation. And this fact about the world, I know non-representation. So it's kind of, it's a strange notion. And I think, yeah, contemporary philosophers have tried to make some progress here and they, one popular theory is that, look, when you deliberate about the course of action that you're going to take, you know, the means that would make it possible for you to accomplish your end, this deliberation. And in a decision where you say, "Okay, now I shall move my hand towards the cup," it's because you've gone through this process of deliberation that you formed and adopted a decision, and so that's how you know that you have made that decision or that you have that intention. You didn't figure it out by observing your behavior or observing the world, like looking deep inside yourself and figuring out that, "Oh, I have the intention to move my hand towards the cup." No, you've gone through a del- process of deliberation and you've adopted that decision. So. That is one iteration of contemporary action theory. And I think there are a lot of things that sound attractive about it, but there are also a lot of things that are very problematic about it. It is at odds with how we ordinarily use our concepts. So the problem with the theory that I've just outlined is we don't in fact, always deliberate about what to do for the most part. And so that is not captured by this theory. Another problem is that this theory also faces a kind of infinite regress problem because deliberation is an action. So do you need to deliberate in order to deliberate? Don't you need to deliberate in order to deliberate in order to deliberate? No, we don't really think about action like that. We don't think of it as necessarily, of course, sometimes we do deliberate about what to do, but that's not what makes an action an action.
2: So one of my favorite theorists in philosophy of free will and free action is Alfred Mealy. And he talks a lot about the springs of action and he takes this traditionalist Cartesian view Um, of action. So he talks about a series of steps that you go through before you perform a free action. And it's quite a sophisticated set of steps. So you first become aware of the situation around you, you have sort of like a, an operational awareness of what's going on. You form in your mind a set of reasons that you could act on, and then you 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 perform a practical judgment on that that set of reasons. Then you decide that the practical judgment is the right one. You form an intention to act on the the, the decision, and then you act on the intention. So it's this it, it's a very sophisticated set of criteria. And when you ask Alfred Meili, so I mean, does this really happen in your mind? Are you aware of this really happening when you go and? Uh, pull a chocolate off the shelf. He says, well, no, I, I'm not aware of it happening, but it is happening. So mm-hmm. it's sort of unconscious. I don't know if you've seen those memes of cats. They're, they're sitting on the edge of, of, a, of a table and they're going to leap across the room to a couch. And the cat is he's, he's sort of balancing and he's looking and he's balancing and he's looking and then he leaps. And mm-hmm. in the meme, as he's balancing and looking and balancing and looking, all these geometrical shapes are floating over his head. And, and the question is, is the cat performing advanced geometry in its head? And it's like in one sense, obviously not, right? So Mm -hmm. obviously the cat is not, obviously it has no conception of geometry, but in another sense, perhaps it is. In another sense, there's something going on in its mind that's analogous to a machine that what, as if it were calculating these options. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, and it's an idea that I'm very uh, partial to, unlike Mark, is that there's a lot of things going on in our brains unconsciously all the time. I want to use the word pre-consciously rather than unconsciously. So Searle talked about the unconscious versus the pre-conscious and the unconscious is in principle unknowable. The pre-conscious is in principle knowable. It's just not currently in your awareness. I I like to defend theories like like the traditional view, like Alfred Mealy's view by saying, "If, if I were to question you enough, and if I were to slow down time, and if I were to put you in an fMRI scanner, we will see all of these steps in the springs of action happening. We'll see it. We'll mm-hmm. see that part of the brain that's responsible for becoming aware of your, your circumstances. We'll see each of those parts of, of the deliberative process happening in your brain. They just happen so fast. And because we're so used to them happening, we don't even pay attention. Because if we were to pay attention, it would paralyze us.
1: Yeah. And the, the idea is something like this look, we can have different kinds of access to our mental states. So I think most people are happy to distinguish between access by language or access by perception or phenomenology. So, so my terms for that, for that distinction is we have symbolic access and we have uh, phenomenological access, and we can have symbolic or phenomenological access to objects or to concepts or to our own attitudes. So if I say I desire chocolate, I have S access to my desire. But I don't need to actually say out loud, even think to myself, I desire chocolate in order to have access to my desire for chocolate. I could just attend to the fact that "Mm, like I'm fantasizing, I'm imagining how good chocolate tastes and I feel this nagging feeling in my stomach and yeah, I definitely want some chocolate, right? I can identify it if I want as my desire for chocolate, but I don't need to have this explicit access to it. So we can apply that idea to action a number of steps that I actually take in moving my arm up. I can say. If I'm going to make it very, very explicit, I move my arm up to the halfway point between here and here, and then to the halfway point between there and there, and to the half point in order to move my arm up. All of that is implicit in my P-axis to my moving my arm up. So yeah, the justification here for why that access is incorrigible is because that understanding is the precondition for the action, we're getting closer to our common usage of the term action, but this still leaves some things out. We can actually perform actions on autopilot uh, without really thinking of them. Actually, Mel, who you've mentioned, Alfred Mel, he had a paper that he co-authored with a few other people, a kind of experimental philosophy paper where they pulled people. And one of the examples that they had was a habitual action where someone leaves their house and they lock the door, but they're not really, they don't have S access to that action and they don't have P access uh, to that action. They're not aware of doing it. And they ask people, was this action intentional? And most people say, yes, this action was intentional. And that's, it, it seems that in order to account for that ordinary intuition, we need to develop a theory, another step further. So now, because now the agent does not have P access. So one kind of natural way in which people try to develop things is they say, oh, well, you don't need to have S or P access in, in order to do something. It just needs to be a mere prompting way. So if we had asked you while you were locking the door, what are you doing? Well, like, Why are you turning your hands? You would have been able to gain access to your action. So you see we're, we're modifying and modifying this area, but I've got more examples <laughs> to to show that Well, yeah, this is is a good development, but this is still not enough.
0: So I'd like to give you a couple of cases to push this forward. The one might be if you think about how skill acquisition works. Imagine someone who's picked up a guitar for the first time and they're trying to learn how to play a song and they have to be incredibly intentional about all of it. They're thinking about, I'm gonna place my fingers you know, on these chords and I'm gonna strum at this speed. And eventually they, they learn that song, uh, and over the years they become very accomplished. And so they're able to play the song, but there is no intentional state going on anymore that's um, obvious to them. Uh, they can play it automatically, as you say. And we mm-hmm. might think that our intuitions are a bit like this, that we have to start off by slowly learning something, um, that we are very, very conscious as to why we are doing something. But then over time, it becomes automatic. The other thing that arises to my mind, if we think about culpability and law, if we want to hold someone responsible for their actions, we take the view that you have to be acting like an agent in a non-autonomous fashion. So if you think about someone who stabs their sister to death because they plot and they plan and they get the knife and they come up behind her and they stab her versus someone who uh, is holding a knife and has an epileptic fit and through no intent they stab their sister to death and this is not something that they are trying to do and we think that that matters when you want to hold the person accountable for their actions
1: sometimes when we learn to do something we can be extremely deliberate like very s- access focused on that maybe even you know, when I'm learning to tie my shoe places as a kid, I'm thinking, okay, now this goes through here, this goes through there, now tighten that, but eventually that falls away and we only have P access and maybe eventually even that falls away and we just do it automatically, but we can gain P access to it. So yeah, it's, it's kind of example that drives both the, the second iteration and the third iteration that I've mentioned. Then what are the examples that are going to get us uh, further? I think. Yeah, the second thing that you've mentioned is going to be of some relevance. I think there's different source of examples that we need to consider now. So remember that, going all the way back to Descartes again, he is telling us, he wants to tell us what the mind is, what beliefs are, uh, or what the, the representings are. We can't know the represented for sure, but we can know the representing with certainty on Descartes' picture. So. He thinks you cannot have a belief without knowing about it. A belief is just this conscious thing. And the continuity with action theory is that action theory says, actions are these uh, things that you know about, you know, either that you've decided to do them or that you intended to do them or that you're doing them. You have some kind of access. If you don't, then that's not an action. And now we might have several questions We might think, well, but sometimes like I can make a mistake. I want to, I think I'm pressing button A, but I've pressed button B and in ordinary language we say, we would say of me that you pressed button B, you, that's something that you did. And I didn't know that I was doing it. I thought that I was pressing button. That's one of the examples that Anscombe mentions. Davidson mentions another example. He says, so you turn the light on and as a consequence of that, you alert the burglar and we say, if you ordinarily, you've alerted the burglar, that's something that you did, even though you didn't know that you were doing it. So. Might ask action theory, well, what about these cases? What about these cases of action? And the response that one finds in the literature is to say, look, okay, we actually only meant to be talking about intentional actions, special class. And they are ontologically prior because without an intentional action, you won't have those other actions and those other actions are like broader descriptions of what you've done, but they're not intentional. And I'm, I'm trying to connect to your point about, we can say she killed him intentionally, or we can say she killed him in a fit of epilepsy. I mean, I think that the epilepsy case is, a, is also something that post-crisal might consider, but they might say this is an easier case because this behavior wasn't, there was no intentional action there to begin with. It was just kind of behavior that we can explain purely, maybe in scientific terms as a cause and effect something was happening in the brain and that caused this spastic movement so we say we use the word action but we don't really mean action sometimes we say of the tree uh, that it dances in the wind it's not a very precise use of the word action it's we're kind of anthropomorphizing and something similar is going on when you know someone twitches or has a spasm or yeah maybe as a consequence of epilepsy of an epileptic fit but um, yeah i want to come back to uh, and uh, this other class, these broader descriptions of action, because I think, okay, so there has been an interesting paper in the 2000s, also an experimental philosophy paper about these kinds of actions. And I think it was Joshua Nob. And what they did in that experiment is they put put the following scenario to people. They said, look, the, the CEO is making some decision about uh, some new policy that they're going to adopt. And we've got one situation where the advisors tell the CEO, look, if you adopt this decision, this is going to have very bad consequences for the environment. It's going to harm the environment. And then they ask the people, if the CEO adopts this decision and as a result, the environment is harmed, was the harming of the environment intentional? And most people say, yes. Even though the CEO didn't, it would, he knew that this was going to be a consequence, but what uh, he was doing, but he didn't know it as his action in the sense of like, he wasn't harming the environment for a certain further end. It was what we might call a side effect. And then in the case of, then they give the other scenario to the people where the CEO is being told, if you adopt this decision, then the environment is going to be benefited. Uh, And the CEO says, I don't care about the environment. Uh, Let's, let's just do this. And people are asked, so if he does this and the environment is benefit, was the benefiting intentional? and people say no. So the, the harming of the environment is intentional, the benefiting is not intentional. According to the way that philosophers of action use the term intentional, neither the benefiting or the harming is intentional because both fall into this category of the broader descriptions of action. They're the causal consequences of what you do intentionally because you don't do them with a view towards something else. So if you turned on the light and that alerted the burglar, that was a side effect because you didn't want to alert the burglar for some further end. So, one kind of reaction that one could have to the experimental philosophy experiments is to say that, well, maybe the people are just confused. Certainly, there is something confusing going on because we've got two, in terms of action theoretical structure, identical actions. But in the one case, the people say it's intentional. In the other case, they say it's not intentional. So, maybe <laughs> that they're just a uh, uh, layman who are have an unsophisticated view of action, but I think there's something too, to comment about this ordinary reaction. And that is that the people are picking up that there is a relation between what we call intentional and what we think people can be properly held responsible for. And the problem with this category of broader descriptions of actions or side effects is that the philosophers of action don't really tell us how to understand that category so what entailments does it have to say that something you did something in the broader sense of the term what does it commit you to, to when you say that someone or you did something in a broader sense of the term so this device of broader description of action i think is just it's something that we try to tap onto the neat theory that we've devised of the paradigm case but it's very underexplored and very undefined. So that puts some pressure on the theory. But maybe they can find some way of again pulling off an iteration, and they can still hold on to the idea that well, it is still intentional in the sense of transparent actions. Actions that you have access to, they are ontologically prior. If there is no such action, there is no action in the broader sense of the term. Some people in action theory consider Freudian cases or cases from psychoanalysis, and they're not too perturbed by them because they say, okay, it's true that in these sorts of cases. The agent doesn't have S access, the agent doesn't have P access to their action. But we can explain those cases derivatively from our preferred paradigm case in which the agent does have access, D- derivatively in the sense that, well, we can imagine someone doing it consciously in access, with access. It's just that in this particular case, th- they lock the access and it's a kind of deficiency. So it's a derivative action. It's a deficient action. Uh, that's the sort of move that is made. And I think the curious thing is to notice that there are some actions, things that we call actions ordinarily. And I think what Rousseau did, what he really did, what some people think he really did, might be an action of this sort. Actions that we can only perform if we don't have access to them. And if we consider those kinds of actions that we'll see that the transparent case cannot be the paradigm case because it cannot explain these sorts of actions.
0: To return to something you said a bit earlier, if we think about the case you give about the executive, it's interesting how this plays out in South African law. So if we think about how criminal law works, and there you're trying to work out whether to hold someone responsible for their actions, we talk about different kinds of intent. So you get direct intent. So I put a gun to your head, I pull the trigger, I intend on killing you and I kill you. Then we get indirect intent, which is that I intend on killing you, but your brother is standing in front of you and I shoot through him. get to you i don't have a direct intent to kill your brother i have an indirect intent to kill him and then Mm -hmm. we have a thing called dolus eventualis which is this idea that i resign myself to the possibility of causing you harm, and i do it anyway so i throw a grenade into your house and i think there's a possibility that you might be at home and that you might die it's not my direct or indirect intent but i foresee the possibility and i resign myself to it and in all those cases in south african law we say you're then liable for the murder and what's interesting about the, the corollary case you give is where someone is foreseeing the benefit that could accrue from their action. So it's a dotus eventualis case of assisting the environment, but we don't call that intentional action. Might be because we're not in the case of holding someone liable and that that's why there's some kind of distinction that's going on there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think that that is correct. And I think that that's what the ordinary intuition suggests to people. I mean, I also think that it's... It's correct insofar, and as we consider the legal context of responsibility, or even just uh, responsibility in the sense of, well, should you say something about it to the to the person? Is is that's like how important is it to hold them responsible? It's more important to hold people responsible for bad things that they do, perhaps, than uh, than the good things. But my personal opinion is that we are responsible for everything that we do. So I would say the CEO is responsible for both the harm caused to environment and to the benefits caused to the environment. And yeah, I think I think philosophy of action could learn a lot from the law because the law has developed these sophisticated categories of distinctions between different kinds of actions because it matters not only that you did it, but also how you did it. Whether you desired it, whether it was a plan, whether it was an accident. Yeah. And I think that these are the kinds of categories that it would serve philosophers well to also consider when coming up with the general theoretical framework for action.